how you could be earning a 7% yield from the power of the sun and should you help your children with university fees. This is the Personal Finance Show with me, Kate Bealey, and today I'm joined by James Armstrong of Bluefield Solar Income Fund to talk about whether renewable energy investing is all sunny side up or whether slash subsidies could mean storm clouds on the horizon. So, James, what kind of solar projects do you invest in and how many plants do you have in the portfolio now? Good morning, Kate. Um, We've got... Uh, over 80 uh, solar farms, all based in the UK, and the the vast majority of them are large ground-based solar farms, which are the the ones you might see on the edge of the motorway or um, on sort of the edge of sort of train lines. Okay, what what kind of power are they generating? So they're generating electricity from uh, solar radiation. So it's um, using solar modules to generate the electricity, which is then exported onto the to the grid. Okay. Um, Now, this trust is one of the fastest growing investment companies since launch over the past five years. So you've grown assets under management by 333%, apparently. Um, Just why are these assets so popular in your view? Well, it's a good question. So we we IPO'd in July 2013. And um, the objective of the fund was to deliver index-linked yield. Uh, and income. And, and that's what we've done. So firstly, we have delivered and it actually exceeded um, our dividend targets for our shareholders. Um, so we've obviously delivered on our business plan, but also I think we have um, fitted into the um, a sort of a very general trend for investors is that they are obviously very hungry for yield where you've got low interest rates, you've got obviously very uh, low returns on bonds and government bonds and corporate bonds and uh, a very high yielding, but um, non-correlated income stream is something that's very attractive and that's been one of the drivers for us. And, and your yield at the moment is around 6.6%, isn't it? And you yeah. said index linked. So that means that that yield is rising, is it, with inflation? How is that? Yeah, so the fund is targeted to rise with uh, RPI, so with the retail price index. Um, the reason for that is the majority of the revenues, so 60% of the revenues are uh, regulated and directly linked to RPI. And then the balance, the 40% of revenues is um, driven by us selling the electricity on the wholesale markets. And so um, the aim for the fund is to keep growing um, the income by RPI each year. Okay. Um and so you mentioned a couple of kind of areas that the revenue does come from there. How much of the revenue is dependent on or comes from subsidies? Yeah, so that's um, so roughly for the Bluefield Solar Fund, it is roughly 60% comes from regulated revenue. So they are non-correlated to any market conditions and they are RPI linked from the date of um, the installation of the solar farm for 20 years. And then the balance, the 40% comes from uh, selling the power on the wholesale markets. Okay. Um, And I want to just focus on subsidies for a bit because we have had big changes there, haven't we? Um, Both to subsidies from government and also to investment. So um, according to the Green Alliance, more than a billion pounds of future investment in renewable energy projects disappeared over the course of 2016. An investment in wind, solar, biomass, power and waste to energy will decline. Apparently they say 95% between 2017 and 2020. Is that a concern for you? Has that affected you? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the backdrop, the context, Kate, is that the the UK solar market from 2013, from when we IPO'd the company through to 2016, was one of the largest um, and fastest growing primary markets, so new installation markets for solar anywhere in the world. In fact, it was the the top solar market in Europe for three years running. So you have the the sort of the context is that in fact we did see very significant growth, and I think that. Um, 
the government uh, should be sort of uh, congratulated. Everyone's very keen to criticise governments the whole time, but they should be congratulated in the solar uh, area because we went from virtually no installations now, which is um, in 2013, to about 12 gigawatts of installations um, today. So you have a very healthy, positive backdrop. Governments are always looking to see how they can manage in the most uh, tax-efficient way for, um, and also the most um, economically efficient way for the public, how they you can drive this move from fossil fuels to renewables. And what the, the way they do that is through reducing subsidies. Now, the, you can argue that some of the changes to subsidies were a bit too dramatic. And, and what were those? Because obviously part of that growth was um, was because of these very generous um, former subsidies. What Just what was the change there in support from the government to solar projects? So you had um, a programme from... 2013 of degressive, so a degrading um, subsidy level. So they started what was done through the Renewable Obligation Scheme, which has driven, since 2001, has driven the whole renewables market in, in the UK. And so in, in kind of layman's terms, does that mean essentially the government will pay you for generating solar power? No, the electricity companies will. So it's not a tax on the consumer. It's not a, um, it is an obligation for the energy companies. So the major, the, sort of the oligopoly of energy companies, that they have to um, have certain amounts of green certificates. And so it was not done through a tax system. It's done through actually uh, a commercial system through the energy companies so you know it's an, uh, an effective way of trying this tra- you know getting the transition from fossil fuels over to renewables um, but what they've done is they tried to the government has tried to um, recognize that installation costs and solar has an incredibly attractive and dynamic dynamic um, cost reduction um, dynamic and you have um, the government was trying to recognize this so they were gradually reducing the subsidies that were available when you installed and now as of the 1st of April so it's a very interesting time to talk to you from the 1st of April this year there are no subsidies for solar uh, at all and indeed for for onshore wind. So what does that mean for your portfolio just how much of your portfolio is invested in plants which are still receiving those very generous former subsidies and how much is invested in the new less lucrative plants? Well, I mean, the great thing for us, so it doesn't impact us at all in terms of the existing portfolio. So we have circa £600 million worth of uh, solar assets in the UK, um, and they all have um, been installed before the 1st of April. So they were installed over the last three years. So they're receiving those? So they've already locked in for 20 years, the regulation. So it's very attractive. So and what age are those on average? Those So plants? the average, yeah, so the average plant, you, I mean, you assume a life expectancy for these plants of 25 years. Um, but the the average life for our portfolio is 18 months. So they're relatively young, but they've all locked in. So this is the, the you know, very key point is that they have all locked in uh, the regulation for 20 years. Um, and so uh, that is unaffected. The interesting thing, I suppose, if you're thinking about sort of the market dynamic, uh, Kate, is that um, clearly what you're seeing is at the moment, there is very little new installation of solar. Um, that's partly because um, obviously the market historically had worked with subsidies. So that means that there is a fixed um, uh, capacity of solar assets. And for us as a, uh, an owner of assets, that at the moment is driving uh, asset prices up when transactions are taking place. And obviously that in turn should be beneficial for our portfolio in terms of valuation. Okay, so and does that also mean that in the future you could sell those in order to generate revenue for the trust? 
Well, interestingly, um, that's not the objective. I mean, it, it's a good question. It's it's not the objective, and for our the majority of our shareholders, the major shareholders, is the objective for the fund is for long term hold. So it's a permanent capital vehicle which is designed for yield for income, and that's the the objective of the majority of our investors. And. In the future, does this mean that you will be moving away from uh, building solar parks to buying them on the secondary market? Yes, if, if the price um, the price is right, as they say. Um, I, I think the, the model that Bluefield adopted f- since IPO is that we have built out the vast majority, and so we're talking over 80% of the portfolio, um, has been um, acquired through funding through construction. So we took advantage of this rapidly growing uh, primary market in, in the solar world in the UK. Um, why we did that was because it was the most efficient way of um, funding these assets. You're effectively, for our shareholders, we were removing a layer of financing cost and we were using our capital to fund uh, the build out of these assets, which are very simple to build. You know, there's not a, they're not complex bits of, of infrastructure. Um, we did buy, do a secondary acquisition, uh, which was, um, as I say, for a minority of our portfolio. And so we are very actively looking to see whether we can buy uh, secondary assets. But I have to say at the moment, um, it's very competitive out there. A lot of people think solar assets are a good, a good idea. Uh, and we think uh, just at the moment, pricing is a little bit too keen. So what does that mean in terms of how you can grow this trust going forwards and grow the portfolio? Well, we have a big, I mean, as you, you acknowledged um, uh, a few moments ago, you know, we've had, seen very significant growth in the last four years. So we've gone from an IPO of 130 million in 2013 to 600 million of gross assets today and a, and a market cap of circa 450 million. Um, that is, you know, that's a, a very significant growth. And we have a lot of activities in terms of growing underlying uh, earnings. We have a, a team of 40 people based in the UK, based in London and Bristol, who are focused on, for our shareholders at the moment, focused completely on seeing how we can maximise revenues for them. So whether that's in our power purchase agreements, um, uh, whether that's in uh, cost reductions in terms of the contracts we have in place. And indeed, we have a technical asset management team in Bristol, which is a bunch of engineers who do a lot of the, the really the hard work, the unseen hard work. Those guys and girls are out on the sites um, very regularly, every single day, looking at um, looking at the plants and seeing how we can improve efficiencies and generate more power for our shareholders. So there's a lot of work to do, uh, even if we're not actually uh, buying new assets. Okay, and I, I, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I think one obvious question which people think of when it comes to renewable energy is uh, it's obviously not sunny all the time. Um, <laughs> how seasonal is this income stream and what, what do you do about kind of smoothing that through the year when we have no sun, for example? Yes, indeed. Again, a, a good a good question. So, I mean, let me just say that the reason that Bluefield Partners, so the, the business that I founded, we, we set it up as an investor into solar, uh, was for the reason that um, solar as an energy source is very predictable. And so what do I mean by that? The, the energy source comes on in the morning and is turned off at night. And that's the same in the UK as it is in Spain or Italy. It's just you get a bit more irradiation uh, in more southerly climes than you do in the UK. But as an energy source, it's fantastically predictable. It's very forecastable. And your, um, so the ability to be able to forecast what your energy generation will be on a year-on-year basis is, um, is relatively straightforward. To your question about seasonality, I mean, you earn the dividend. So that dividend of 7.25 pence that we have this year, it's earned between the, the months of March 
and October. And in the winter months, you don't earn anything. So it is obviously very seasonal. That wouldn't surprise uh, anyone when we say that. But obviously our job in terms of a full, a full year dividend, which is quarterly, is that obviously for ourselves and the board, we will look to smooth that as much as we can so that the quarterly dividends are as even, uh, as, even as they can be. But there will always be a little bit of seasonality in that. Okay, and, and you touched on it just now, but what is the outlook for getting more power from solar in the UK over the coming years? Is it an energy source that's getting, uh, or a mode of generating energy that's getting more efficient and costs coming down? Are those ways that you could see revenue improving for the trust? Well, I think for the existing portfolio, um, you've locked in a certain revenue stream, which obviously is delivering the returns. So, um, so looking forward, what's the outlook for? I mean, for solar globally, uh, and I will sort of uh, stick my colours to the mast here, is that solar globally will become the preeminent renewable source anywhere. It will eclipse, and no pun intended, but the the, the wind industry. Why do you say that? Um, it's because um, solar is. Uh, absolutely made for being deployed into areas where you can have this what's called distributed generation so you can if you're talking about the indian solar market there's 300 million people off grid at the moment and you can stick a solar farm in villages you can stick a solar farm in agriculture situations and it's very easy to get them on grid it works it's very predictable it's simple to install um, and then the added uh, part of that, which is links to your question, is that solar costs have come down enormously in the last decade or so. So since I've been actively working in the solar industry, the costs have come down by about 85%. Um, and it's still continuing. It's due to the cost of modules and uh, equipment coming down. But that will that's driving the fact that you now, in uh, around the world, you can install solar without any subsidies. Uh, and it's comparative to, in terms of, in the US, it's comparative uh, in terms of cost to coal. And so you've got the ability for a, a technology now which is very user-friendly, very easy to install, um, that will be able to proliferate around the world. The outlook for the UK is uncertain in terms of new installations at the moment because there is um, the a non-subsidised UK solar market. People are working out whether it's possible and we're obviously looking at this ourselves, whether it's possible to install solar farms economically enough to be able to um, to be able to just export to the grid or indeed agree uh, power purchase agreements with big corporates. And that's what people are looking at. But it's not that far away. I mean, I would say that there's a reasonable expectation that you could be um, 18 to 24 months away. There could be non-subsidized solar coming through in the UK. Okay. Uh- just with that level of competition um, and the difficulties in this market that you've kind of touched on, how will you be growing the income of this trust and growing its share price over the next 10 years? Well, I think there's... So you've got two different, um, I suppose, sort of two elements to that question. One is our, in terms of the, the underlying earnings. So as I've, I've mentioned, you've got... Um, you know, it's our job to look at how we can drive out uh, earnings increases through power purchase agreements, through uh, optimizing the cost base, which means obviously trying to reduce costs, um, and also where we're going to look to see whether we can, um, with the technical asset management team, Bluefield Services in Bristol, whether we can um, obviously drive out higher generational 
a performance and all those things are ongoing so that's where but that will be harder than than the kind of astronomic growth that you've had so far which has been by building new plants no sure but you, you if you look at it in terms of the structure um of, of the trust um that you're t- what what that is 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 obviously you're looking at acqu- acquisitions which are growing the actual um underlying nav whereas um what we're looking at in a steady state is that we can drive earnings growth which is what our shareholders want okay and I mean, one negative about this whole area, um, renewable energy infrastructure, is it's a popular area, so it does trade on a pretty big premium. Um, your premium at the moment is around 6.2%. Uh, do you do anything to manage that? And would you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think certainly um, we haven't had to. I mean, I think also, I think for the the, the trust sector and for our, our sector, it has been... Um, it's nice to see that, that we are tra- all trading at, um, at premiums to NAV. And it's just something that's actively uh, looked at really by the independent boards um, as you go forward. I think I would, I would argue also that um, whilst they are trading on premiums to NAV, I think it's a reflection that the sector generally, and there's half a dozen companies in our sector, uh, generally are undervalued. And when you've got a, a business like Bluefield Solar that's offering even on that premium, a, uh, a largely non-correlated dividend of, you know, six or oh, seven, seven point two five pence per share, so six and a half percent a year. That relative to most other asset classes and bonds and cash is very attractive, and so you could argue that the the sector generally in Bluefield Services and uh, Bluefield uh, Solar, sorry, is um, is undervalued still. Okay, well, thanks. I think that's all we've got time for. But thanks very much. Thank you. Um, Now, moving on, it's September, which means a fresh batch of university students and uh, potentially a fresh batch of financial headaches for any parents wanting to help them out with their fees. I'm joined now by personal finance writer Emma Adjaman to talk about how you might be able to put together a portfolio to help and also whether or not you should. So, Emma, what kind of bill are students looking at for university this year? Um, this year, students can borrow up to £9,250 to cover tuition fees. And they can also apply for maintenance and loan for living costs. And this really ranges from about £7,000 a year if you're going to stay at home. Um, or if you're going to live away in London, it, it can, you can borrow up to £11,000 a year. OK, and what kind of interest do students build up on that debt? And when does the interest start from... Um, well, this is a thing. So the interest starts as soon as the student receives their first payment. Um, and that means whilst they're still studying. And it grows at a rate of inflation of retail price index um, RPI plus 3%. Okay. And, and what's that at the moment? What's RPI running at now? So at the moment, it's running at 3.1%. So in total, um, whilst they're still studying, interest is going to be accruing at 6.1%. Ooh. And when do graduates have to start paying back this debt? Um, so basically, when they start working, um, as long as they're earning over £21,000, they have to start paying the debt. And the way that the interest is calculated, um, it also varies on on how much they're earning. So if they're earning between £21,000 and £41,000, it's calculated at RPI plus a percentage based on their salary. Um, if they're higher earners earning more than £41,000, you will be paying RPI plus 3%. Okay, but it does get wiped out after a certain point, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So um, basically, if after 30 years, there's still any outstanding debt, um, the loan will be completely wiped out. Okay. So how does this compare then to kind of other 
types of personal debt in terms of how expensive it is to service and that kind of thing? I mean, you know, interest rate of 6.1% is, you know, pretty expensive, certainly compared to mortgages and um, secured loans. But in other ways, this sort of student loan debt is quite different to other forms of debt because, for example, um, the loans automatically wiped out after 30 years and the repayments are based not on the amount that you owe but the amount that the graduate earns over the threshold. Okay, so there are two schools of thought, aren't there, about whether or not you should help out your children with paying off this debt. I'm sure there's one school of thought among the children themselves. Yeah, but sure. What do people say about it? <laughs> um, well, actually, I mean, it's, it's this whole argument of are you actually going to need to pay back the full amount of debt? Um, so, for example, the Institute for Physical Studies has estimated that something like three quarters of students um, or graduates will have part of their debt wiped out. Um, and so, you know, some of the the wealth advisors and managers we spoke to suggested that um, parents shouldn't really think about trying to clear this debt for their um, their student for their children rather, because in some cases many of them need to pay it all back in full and and why bother in that sense okay but then others say that you should or you know it's a good idea to try and help them don't they what do they say yeah um so basically they point to the fact that um graduates after they're earning twenty one thousand pounds are going to have to be paying nine percent on the loan um nine percent of their of their earnings so and that's over for the next 30 years so that's obviously a real drag on their earnings over that period um, and particularly if you're a higher earner um, as I say the interest accrues at a higher rate so um, you might want to sort of so it's a big bill exactly it's, it's a big bill you might want to try and clear that as soon as possible okay so if you did want to help out a child or teenager I guess with um with these fees how could you think about building up an investment pot that might pay for it um, well, one good way is to open a junior individual savings account um, and, you know, try and save as, as much and as regularly as possible, because that way you can benefit, benefit from stock market gains and ride out, you know, market volatility. And um, the sooner you do that, the better, because um, the, the longer amount of time that you have to put into, into that pot, the bigger it will be. Okay, and in terms of what you might invest in, um, is there a difference in what you might put in a pot if you had less time versus having a lot more time? Sure. Um, if you you know have less time, you generally won't be able to take as much risk. So um, you have to think about the amount of time that you really would like to be using the money. If you've got a longer period of time, for example, if you're thinking about um, children that are still very young or newborns, you can obviously be more adventurous and um, go into areas such as investing in smaller companies, which, you know, higher risk, but potentially higher reward as well. Okay, great. Well, for more on that and to see some suggested funds for building up on those pots, take a look at this week's magazine. Otherwise, that's all we've got time for. So join us again next week.